0: down to verse 13, there is a great deal in this prophecy that Christ made. It is probably, along with Luke 21, the most insightful of the things Christ said during his ministry on the earth in terms of how things would be here in the end times and what we would be facing. So it is a very important part of Scripture for us And there's a great deal of instruction here as well, and guidance that we need in order to be able to survive and even thrive under the circumstances that the world and we are now facing. Now, the subject here, obviously, is the end of the age and the sign of Christ's coming, and that's what he answers in this chapter. Uh, again repeated in Luke with some detail added that is also important and we'll get to. But for a brief review, we talked about wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in different places. In other words, everything begins to spiral out of control toward the end. And we see many of those things beginning to happen. Then he talks about how persecution will come on anyone who seeks to obey God. uh, That is, comes with a territory. It's part of what will occur. And we already we begin to see different groups uh, arising against anyone who purports to follow Christ, whether they're true believers or not. If they carry the name Christ or Christian, there is a vast segment of the world that is turning against them. And trying to do actually something about it, not just badmouth, but actually kill, behead in some cases, and it will get worse and worse. And when you come down to true Christianity, Satan knows the difference between those who are truly followers of God and those who may think they are but are not in reality. So there will be a difference between those two groups, but ultimately we will find He's talking to the, the disciples, to be apostles here, that even those within the truth of God will also be persecuted and many killed. So we are looking at this coming down very quickly now, and I think it is important to address this overview that Christ gave. We left off with the thought in verses 10 through 13, that even within true believers of God and of the Scriptures who have the truth, that many will be offended by each other, by someone, by circumstances, or whatever, and begin to betray one another and hate one another. These are things that will occur within the church of God. Now that is obviously an ungodly circumstance but it is one that he says will transpire it's prophesied it has to happen and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many so when people begin to be offended and they begin to have bitterness and hate then watch out because it's a time also when people will begin to speak false things and many people will be deceived Now, this is scary territory, because he's talking within the church of God. So wherever there are members of church, groups of the church, here, there, and everywhere, uh, these conditions will begin to appear. Be careful when it happens, lest you be deceived. And not only that, but lawlessness, or sin, or iniquity, whatever synonym you wish to use, shall abound, and the love of many will wax cold. Now this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So when people begin to let his commandments, his instructions, his way of life slip, then love begins to wax cold, because that's what happens when we do not obey God's commandments. As people begin to turn against each other, they begin to lose feelings of closeness and camaraderie and family and those things that we ought to have uh, within the church of God. So, disobedience leads to coldness and lack of love. And that's what is coming down. Uh, you see splits and divisions all through the church, including here. Because of some of these conditions that begin to happen. And he said they would happen all over. And then he gives a clue, verse 13, where we ended up. He that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. So, this is going to be... A trial of patience and Luke puts it that way patience, we'll get there if we come to some degree an endurance test will we cave in? will we give in? will we listen to the wrong things? will we allow ourselves to be drawn away? will we begin to lose the fervency, the love, the closeness that we are commanded to have and all fly apart and then it's every man for himself and then we get picked off one by one. So, this is a warning. It is an admonition. And it is at the same time an encouragement that things are going to get so bad that it is going to require endurance. It isn't a hundred yard dash It's a marathon, in other words. We have to keep going, even though we might feel tired, we might get weary, we might get sidetracked, we might have one kind of problem or another that would cause us to slow down, to take a wrong fork, or to give up entirely. And you don't give up Immediately, do you? <clears throat> you don't. You don't go. You're not headed just as fast as you can run in a certain direction, and then at an instant, just stop. No. When you're running a long distance, you're trying to keep your breath. You're trying to keep your endurance up. You're trying to finish the race, and If you stop in that type of race, it comes on in increments. Somebody passes you, it's discouraging. Somebody elbows you, it's frustrating because it takes extra energy to get yourself back in stride after being knocked off balance. You begin to lose your wind. Your muscles ache. You get tired. So you begin to, you don't want to really quit, but you just begin to kind of inexorably slow down. And after you slow down a certain amount, then you think, why bother? And finally you quit. So he's warning us and encouraging us that this is a race to the finish. And Paul talked about that as well that we have to keep running until the race is done. And he even said of his own life, I finished the course, I, I, I finished the race. And he was about to die, be killed, in fact. So, be sure you've committed yourself to see this thing through all the way to the end. It isn't how you start. It isn't how you are in the middle. It's how you are at the finish line. That's what counts. And in a long race, all kinds of things happen. And in fact, he just listed a whole lot of things that are going to happen before he then tells us in spite of all these things that I just told you hang in there to the end of the race don't get tired don't get distracted don't get discouraged because things will come along that would cause all the above and more reasons to quit reasons to give up sometimes it can be as simple as Who? Me? I'm not important. I'm no good. I'm carnal. I'm human. I'm physical. I'm not spiritual. We can look at ourselves and get discouraged very quickly. In fact, self-discouragement is probably more frequent than being discouraged by others. It's what is on the inside that causes us the most problems. So we have to guard against that. And how do you do that? You keep your eyes on Christ and the Father and what they are doing and the salvation that they have promised to work in you if you remain faithful and true. That's where you have to focus. Because they are working salvation in you. You and I cannot work salvation in ourselves. We are human. We are frail. We are forgetful. We are weak. We have all kinds of problems and psychoses and attitudes. Christ faced all those things, too. And he said, fear not, I have overcome the world. So he has placed us here to do the same thing he did, to overcome the world through his help. And that's the only way we can, is through his help. So we have to, knowing we are in a very tough race, look to where we can get health, sustenance, strength, and power to do the job. Because on our own, we'll fail. And if you try to do it on your own, without the help of deity you will fail you can't perfect yourself and you can't glorify yourself you can only overcome do the very best you can given what you are and pray for mercy and forgiveness and to be accounted worthy so realize we're in a tough situation in a very tough race And it is about to get worse. Much, much, much worse than it is today. All right, let's go on from that thought and that encouragement and warning to verse 14, because he shows some things that must be done before all this does come to an end. He's already told us of some of the horrors and the sorrows and the difficulties. Now there is a job that must be done, beginning in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. Now there are several important things said in that verse that I think we have overlooked in the decades of worldwide. We read the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, And that is where basically we stopped because Herbert Armstrong thought that was his job. And I've gone over this before and I do not believe that was his job. If it was, he did not complete it. But it was not. (coughs) Notice it says, for a witness to all nations. Not a uh, calling work Not a conversion work, a witness against all nations. A witness to all nations. I I think I will turn back to Matthew 28 and read the words that Christ spoke to his disciples. And I do believe this right here in verses 19-20 of Matthew 28 was his job And I do believe he completed it. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of Emmanuel, it should read, or of Christ. Uh, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not in the original. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So... He gave this to the disciples who who became apostles, and he was with them, even though they were killed, martyred for the most part. But he says, even to the end of the age, those who would come from these originals would be there to do and to finish this job, even to the end of the age. Now, what did Herbert Armstrong do? He did a calling work. It was not a powerful warning work, for the most part. Maybe back in the early 50s it was, but it changed. And it became a friendly, calling work overall. And many were called. Then he died, and it all broke up. And out of what is left, God is choosing a few. Many are called, few are chosen. That is what is going on right now. So he read Matthew 24, 14 and assumed that was his job. But it was not. His job was to call many and baptize them and a great work was done. After his death, it began to come apart very quickly. It began even before he died, but it became uh, a landslide afterward. Now, it says, then the end will come after the gospel is preached. I've made the point before, and we have new listeners all the time, so I want to make it again, though it's familiar to most of you. He died over a quarter century ago, and the end has not come. So who is going to preach this witness to all nations, and then the end come? You'll find that in Revelation 11, where he calls out two witnesses against the world. They are told first to go to the church, to get it straightened out, then and to leave out the world of the Gentiles, at least for the time being. Then later, they go to all the world, and they witness against the world. God will not bring down punishment, or issue an edict of judgment, until there have been at least two credible witnesses against the parties involved. God just works that way. One witness is never enough. Because someone with an attitude can make an accusation, but God says two or three witnesses, always, in any case, no matter what is being done, are required. And that isn't rumor, that's eyewitnesses. So you'll have two witnesses that God will raise up as eyewitnesses about what is going on in the world and how it is contrary to God and is satanic. And that will be explained all around the world that that new world order that is encompassing the world at that time is not the millennium of God, but it is the work of Satan the devil to rule the world and to bring in a false millennium. And it will be very short-lived. And we know how long it will last too. Forty-two months once it's all fully in place. But when those two men finish taking that witness to the whole world, they will be killed in the streets of the true Jerusalem. It says, in the city where the Lord was killed. That means there will be some confusion about where that is. The whole world thinks that Jerusalem in the Middle East is where Christ was killed, and he was not. He was killed in the southwestern United States in the original Jerusalem in the original promised land. And that's where they will be killed as well, because that's where Satan and his minions will want to rule from, since it's the true place. I don't have time to go into all of that today. But they are the ones who are commissioned to preach the gospel around the world as a witness. Not to call, not to convert, but to witness against. And once that is finished, they will be killed, and three and a half days later, Christ will return. The first resurrection will occur. So, there's a lot more to verse 14 than we originally thought. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. There is a singular event that is going to occur, and that is, in the temple of God, an abomination, something contrary to God, filthy and unclean, will be set up. A man will stand... In the temple of God, as Second Thessalonians two indicates, we've already had a minor fulfillment of that when an unclean bird, Joseph Takat, stood in Worldwide Church of God and defiled that temple, and took it off to Babylon and set it on its base there, as Zechariah five explains. But there is a bigger, worldwide, and final fulfillment of that that is to occur. has to be in the holy place, not a place that some unholy Jews have built that is their temple, but a temple built by the people of God that is a holy place. The Jews are not holy. We need to grasp that and understand it. They are unholy. They were snakes and hypocrites and unwashed cups and whitened sepulchres when Christ walked the earth, and there has been no repentance since. A few have turned messianic, at least accepting the name of Christ, but they've never accepted the teachings of Christ. So anything they build, unclean hands will touch and build. And it will mean nothing in terms of God's temple. That has to be done by a holy people. Isaiah 52, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. But you're going to see an abomination set up in the holy place, that's spoken of in Daniel 8 and 9 and uh, I think even in 11 as well, as a very crucial moment in the very near future when God's holy temple will be defiled in his holy city on his holy hill, Jerusalem, which is today desolate as the scriptures say. He says, whoso reads, let him understand, parenthetically inserted there. Now the world thinks they understand. They think, most religions who are into prophecy at all, think that where the Dome of the Rock is now on the hill, which they call Mount Moriah in the old city of Jerusalem in the Middle East, the Dome of the Rock is in the way of the temple that the Jews supposedly will build there. So you have a major conflict here between the Islamic world who claims that that city is theirs and that that place is holy to them and that's why they built their temple, the Dome of the Rock, on it. And then you have those who support the Jewish side of the circumstance who say that Dome of the Rock must be removed and Their temple of God built there. And I've read reports over the years that they already have the pieces made, everything's all cut out and put in storage and ready to erect immediately upon the clearing of the site. Now they say that below that dome of the rock is the west wall originally of the temple. They call it the Wailing Wall today. And yet Christ said that temple would be torn down and not one stone left upon another. Can they not read? That is not the west wall of God's temple. It is a rock wall of something, but not God's temple. I've been there and looked at it, and just a pile of rocks kind of put together, and it doesn't look like anything God would have built as a temple, to me, anyway. He who so reads, let him understand... It has only been recently that we have begun to see in the scriptures that the promised land cannot be in the Middle East, that all the scriptures that describe the promised land do not fit over there at all. And many scriptures indicate that it will be desolate for many generations and no man living there. And yet that site of the old city of Jerusalem has never in history since it has existed been entirely desolate and certainly not for generations. It's been defeated, walls have been knocked down, rebuilt, but never was it left desolate without people. So, here is something you have to understand. It will not meet the eye and the world will not know. It is something only God's people will know. And they are just now beginning to be apprised of it, and most of them think it's stupid. Okay, they can think I'm stupid. That's all right. I've actually been called that more than once in my life, I think, among other things. So it really doesn't matter. Truth is truth, and it doesn't matter. We have to go by what Scripture says. And by what locations and conditions fit what Scripture says. That over there does not fit. Anyway, when you see the abomination set up in the true holy place, in the true Jerusalem, understand now... Then let them which be in Judea, you got to be in Judea, the true Judea, which was in the original promised land. Being in the Middle East isn't going to help you a bit, because that is not the original promised land. It is not the holy land. It is not the right place. It is not Judea. So you have to flee into the mountains of Judea. There really are no mountains over there to flee into anyway. Jerusalem's surrounded by what I would call hills, not mountains. I mean, yeah, I guess if you came from, you lived on the beach all your life and the highest elevation within 100 miles was six feet, you might consider those mountains. But anybody who's been around the mountains doesn't consider those mountains. Those are just basically rolling hills. The mountains of Judea are formidable. They're big. They're tall. They're truly mountains. And let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. This will be a moment of incredible danger. When the beast power, the new world order, take over God's true temple in true Jerusalem, That will be the signal to flee to the mountains immediately. Do not look back. Do not pass go. You have one get-out-of-jail-free card, and it has very limited duration. One roll of the dice, and it's over. To use a ticky-tacky monopoly analogy. When that is set up, you immediately flee for the mountains under great duress. Revelation 12 tells us when Satan is cast down for the last time, it will be at that time. And he will send an army after the true believers who are fleeing the true Jerusalem into the mountains of Judea. And he will try to kill each and every one of them. Some will be, be left behind. I think I can show you that some won't make the trip some will be killed woe to them that are with child and to them that are nursing in those days it will be a flight for your life so being eight and a half months pregnant would be I think any of you who have been pregnant would realize would be a serious problem in trying to flee for your life You can barely get from the bed to the living room at that point, it seems. And to be nursing a child would also be difficult. Now, there are many other conditions that could also be a problem. What if you're 80 years old and you don't have any legs or feet or joints and can barely get around the house? Hmm. That would be a problem, too. That would be about as bad as being eight and a half months pregnant, wouldn't it? I would think. What are you going to do? Well, I can show you promises in the Bible. We've read them before, and I don't have time to go there today. But say that God is going to restore His people in the end time and give them the legs of deer. That includes knees and hips. And the capacity to get around and to move and to move quickly when the time comes. Now, he makes it very clear that we're going to be very old when this occurs. Haggai and another scripture along with it, in uh, es- Ezra, I think it is, indicate that there'll be just a few old men who saw the temple in its first glory and see the second, the end time temple. In its glory. And we're going to see today, I think we'll get to it, that this generation must survive until this happens. And as old as some of us are beginning to look and feel, it's got to happen pretty soon. Because there won't be many left if this generation dies out. And I don't think he's talking about our children who are converted. I think he's talking about those who were called into the church for the most part, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, uh, who saw worldwide at its best. And it wasn't at its best in 1970 or 80. Perhaps spiritually, at least I would judge from my experience, uh, early 50s early, to early 60s was probably when it had its greatest spiritual strength, the most healings, the most answers to prayer, and it kind of went downhill from the late 60s until today. It's gotten worse and worse and worse. So there got to be old men around still alive who were able or will be able to make the comparison. So God will have to do something to enable us to even flee Jerusalem to the mountains. And I think that's all explained in the prophecies which we have been in the last 19 years through specifically 14 years. This coming Trumpets Thursday is the 14th anniversary of when this group had its first uh, telephone hookup, first on-air meeting. (laughs) I think there were only three people involved physically that day. Uh, Marla, my wife, and I, and and, uh, Andy Benedetto was there, I believe, on that first broadcast from Colorado. And on this day in 2000. So, we've seen a lot in these. As of January 1st of this coming year, uh, it will mark the 19th anniversary of our beginning of, really, I think, this work, when the information began to come, really, about what it was all about. There were some... Indications a little bit ahead of that, but the actual beginnings were in January 1st of 1996. That 19th year anniversary is coming up in a few months. But God gave great understanding of some of these scriptures that we all before had just simply classed as millennial and moved on. And yes, they have a millennial application, but they also have an application to the end-time church, And that is made very clear in so many places where we are still in the middle of the end time events or the latter days. And the scriptures mention that when they give uh, these things that God says he will bless us with. So it's very obvious that some of these things have to happen ahead of the millennium. And certainly what he's talking about here and this very dangerous flight is premillennial. Because then, that day, shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. That day, that that abomination is set up, and the church flees to the mountains of Judea, right up here on Cedar Mountain in these areas in Zion, is the day, the great tribulation, The twelve hundred and sixty days, the three and a half years, the forty-two months of the book of Revelation and Daniel begin. That's the day it starts. Not before, not after, but that day. It is also the day that the two witnesses stay behind and begin their ministry to the world. A witness against the world. Which continues for twelve hundred and sixty days. That's the length as the book of revelation clearly shows. And except those days should be shortened there should no flesh be saved but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. Now is he talking about the specific 1260 there or is he talking about the seven last plagues I don't know for sure. The context right here might indicate that even the 1260 will be cut short, but even Daniel talks about the 1290, the 1260, and the, the 1335, and how Christ would return at the end of the 1335. So uh, that may be set in stone, but the seven last plagues could be short, cut short, lest no flesh be saved alive. Because there's nothing else that indicates that all flesh would die during the tribulation per se. But the seven last plagues are poured out over a period of a year, the day of the Lord, a year long after that, while the church is having a honeymoon with Christ before coming back to take over rulership of the world. That's when, he says, if he doesn't intervene, no flesh will be saved alive. So he's talking about the end time here. Whether he's talking about the 1260, the three and a half years specifically or not, perhaps remains to be seen. But those are some thoughts on it. Now notice he said, great tribulation such as has never been. Had you lived in Russia during the purges Lenin, Stalin, you would have thought it could get no worse than this. Had you been in Poland during World War II, you would think it cannot get any worse than this. Had you been in a concentration camp in World War II and starving to death and being beaten, you would think it can't get any worse than this. Yes, it will. I don't know that individually it can get a whole lot worse than starving you to death and beating you until you die. But in this case, it will be worldwide. It will be billions and billions of people, not just a few million. Those purges in the Soviet Union and in Germany and in other places, we've had genocides in Africa, we've had genocides in many places on earth really. But this is going to be worse. It will be worldwide. And every individual on the face of the earth will be in danger. In fact, we can show that only a few thousand will be completely protected. And maybe only a hundred million, as Daniel indicates... Out of six and a half, nearly seven billion maybe it's approaching now. A hundred million is all that will survive what is coming. And if the time was not cut short, all would die. This is happening very soon now. So Christ is describing a time that you and I are facing that will be worse than anything that has ever occurred even the flood of Noah that destroyed all but eight souls was very quick Drowning does not take long and the earth was probably not populated as heavily as it is today oh yeah there were millions perhaps hundreds of millions I don't know how many people 1600 years of breeding and not dying living a thousand years you can have a lot of people But he says, whatever that was, this is going to be worse. Count on it. Believe it. Prepare to endure to the end, and learn what you must do in order to be protected. I'll have some things to say about that, not today, but I want to show you some biblical instruction and give you some guidance, because I want you... And I want me to survive this. And there are some definite things that we can do to ensure that we will. So we'll take some time to discuss those. He who is forewarned is forearmed. So it's going to get so bad that it has to be shortened or everyone will perish. Verse 23, Then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Those who are the true believers, who understand the most, the most obedient, the best Christians on earth, whoever they may be, will come that close to being deceived. That's how powerful, how dramatic the signs and wonders that are going to occur will be. When you see people supposedly, allegedly, maybe even truly raised up from sickbeds, maybe, apparently, resurrected. When you see a hologram, or however they do it, of a great white light coming down out of the heavens, saying it's Christ, And you have these scriptures indicate, but he'll come and every eye shall see him. Can they duplicate it? Can the prince of the power of the air make that kind of a presentation? I don't doubt it a bit. He can create illusions of all kinds and distractions And either miracles or apparent miracles, it does say signs and wonders. Great signs and wonders. If you look only to signs and wonders, you will be deceived. We cannot lose sight of the truths of God and what this book say about life about our conduct in life, about which days to keep. If somebody presents the scenario I just discussed, and they Sunday keepers, I ain't going to believe it. If they keep Easter and Christmas instead of God's holy days, I'm not going to believe it. If they don't hold to the truth of God... No matter how compelling it may be, it will mean nothing unless you're taken in by it. How many people have been deceived by a vacuum cleaner or used car salesman in their lives? Doesn't take much, does it? Doesn't take much. Did you ever lie to your parents and get away with it? Well, maybe not too often, but you did. It's pretty easy to deceive a human being. It doesn't take much. That's why we have to be rock solid in what we understand, know, and believe, and be doing it. Because if you know, and know that you know, what this book says, then you cannot be deceived. Now let me give you an example that we're all very aware of. Didn't about half the church go right back into evangelical Protestantism just like that? I mean almost immediately. I watched a very graphic situation in, in in Anchorage back in the late 80s. where they apparently were told from Pasadena that we would institute a 6 o'clock to 6 o'clock Sabbath. The Jews had done that long ago. didn't fit the scripture, which says sunset to sunset. But Alaska became a test case for them because there is an area up in the far north, north of Anchorage, north of the Arctic Circle, not in Anchorage, Not in southern Alaska, but way up there, where the sun never quite sets in the middle, I mean, never quite comes up in the middle of the winter and never quite sets in the middle of the summer. Now, it does dip to the lowest apogee, and then it starts back up, but it doesn't go below the horizon. Now, nobody in his right mind, or who believed in clean and unclean, would live there. Because most of what they eat up there without airplanes to bring in junk from down here is junk from up there. Seals and whales and such. Oh, well, there's some caribou around, but you won't survive up there without whale blubber if that's all you have. I don't think God really intended people to live up there, having been in Alaska for 12 years and seeing some of those things. But nevertheless, that was their excuse. Well, because you don't know when sundown is, then we'll just keep it from 6 to 6. I didn't know at the time that the Kochs were going to change it from Saturday clear to Sunday. But they tested the church right there. There were about, I, I would guess, between four and 500 people there. All the congregations came together in Anchorage for that momentous meeting. And they went through and explained that we're going to keep the Sabbath now from 6 o'clock to 6 o'clock. And to my utter amazement, as soon as the service was over, the guy sitting right in front of me, whom I knew very well, stood up and says, boy, that makes my life easier. He was a commercial fisherman part-time. And Almost everyone in that congregation accepted that without blinking an eye. My family, and only two others that I know of, decided to continue keeping the Sabbath from sundown to sundown. And I got disfellowshipped for so doing. And opening my mouth about it. It was mainly for opening my mouth about it, but... uh, the fact that I was doing it and talking about it got me this fellowship. And then I had a good year and sent in a big tithe and offering check. And about the time it had time to clear in Pasadena, they came to me and says, You can keep the Sabbath whenever you want to, just don't tell anybody. then they also announced that it would be okay after that, that it would be okay to eat unclean meats. Almost the whole congregation again accepted that. You'd have thought they'd proved somewhere along the line by putting the Old and the New Testament together that you can't eat unclean things. The New Testament doesn't say that anywhere. It's twisted to try to say that, but it doesn't say that. But our daughter at the time was working in McDonald's. She went on duty that Sabbath evening at sundown. Sundown, not six o'clock. Sundown. And here were church people coming through McDonald's, ordering ham, Mc- whatever, or bacon, Mcburger, or whatever they had. I don't know. But she knew their voices in the drive-through lane, just like that. Shrimp, lobsters. Bacon, everything. They just simply dropped it. And potlucks then, you had to kind of pick your way through. Because all kinds of creepy crawly things were on the table. About then we quit again, after having been reinstated. But the reason I'm bringing these things up, I've recited them before, is that in this context... Even the very elect could be deceived if it were all possible. Have you proved which day is the Sabbath? Have you proved clean and unclean? Can you go to your Bible and without any doubt in your mind believe the basic doctrines we believe here? Do you really believe the dead are dead? That they are not off in heaven or hell, or that they've been reincarnated as something else somewhere a bee or a buffalo or a human being that lived thousands of years ago. Do you believe the dead know nothing? That's what the scripture says. You don't go to heaven when you die. That's Protestantism, that's Catholicism, that's Satanism. Do you know it? Do you believe it? Have you proved it? Do you know the purpose of human beings on this earth and why God put us here in the first place to be part of his family? Or are you just going to go to heaven when you die and sit on a pink cloud and roll around heaven all day? Don't think so. My Bible says I'll reign on the earth as a king and a priest with Christ, not go to heaven and stay there. Yeah, we'll go to be married and have a honeymoon, but then we're coming right back to rule. There are a lot of people that think that there's going to be a secret rapture. And all this trouble that's coming, they're just going to go from their car or their house or wherever they happen to be, At a discotheque. They don't have those anymore. A rock bar, maybe. Drunk as a skunk. But hey, it don't matter. Because once saved, always saved. And the secret rapture is going to occur. And it doesn't matter where you are. You're just going to go through the roof of the bar. And there you'll be. Dressed like that and drunk as a skunk. Really believe that stuff? That's what they preach to you. Don't think so. How easy is it to be deceived? You better, if you have not, prove from this book what God wants us doing. And not let anyone take you away from it. I've had people through the years and even fairly recently, try to unhinge me from everything I believe. Not a chance. Not going to happen. Give it up. Forget it. It ain't going to happen. I know what this book says, and I believe this book. And I'm not going to throw it away. People think I'm being unduly influenced by somebody that would drag me away from it. Not a chance. I believe what I teach. I have trouble always following everything I believe, but I believe it. And I work at following it, as do you. And we all fall short. That's a different problem. But you had better believe it. You had better understand it. Because he warns us right here, if it were possible the very elect would be deceived. Now, I don't count myself as being even part of the very elect. Do you? If you think that you are very elect, you probably need to do some insightful reading about human nature and the Scriptures and what all men and women are. And then back off like the publican, and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God will determine who the very elect are. And for anybody who sees himself as he really is, to say he is of the very elect has a spiritual problem, I think. It's called self-righteousness. It says that the very elect will scarcely be saved. It doesn't matter. If you are a human being, you're barely, if you're saved, going to be saved. It is by the forgiveness and mercy of our Father and His Son that any of us would make it. Because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God and sin every day. Through a sin of omission or commission, either not doing what we ought to do or doing what we should not do or think. I severely doubt there is any human being who does not sin every day. I've never met them, including in the mirror, by any means. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say to you, Behold, he's in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers. Believe it not, for he's going to come as lightning from the east and shine to the west. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, he does tell us in Zechariah 2 that during the time of the end that he will come and dwell with us. And that's going to be in the desert, the mountains, and the wilderness. But it may not be a visible manifestation. And he may not sit on a rock and talk to us. Therefore we would not say he's in the desert, come see him and listen to him. I suspect he's right here today. It was asked in the prayer that his presence be here to guide, to lead, to direct. So is he in the desert? Yeah, today. But he's talking about his second coming here, when he will manifest himself to the whole world. Now, to prove that to you on a very simple basis, he quoted this to these disciples. The man Saul was alive at this point. He was not yet converted and turned into Paul. Paul. But after what he said here, he struck Paul down on the road to Damascus, took him out in the desert, and taught him there for three and a half years. Or three years, whatever it was. I guess it was three years. So Christ was in the desert then. And had anybody known that he took Paul out there, they could have said, Christ is out in the desert, and it would have been true. Absolutely. So there's already a contradiction of what he said here, if you're to say he'll never be on earth again until he comes in all his glory. Because he's done that since he wrote this. And he said to those disciples, I will not speak often with you hereafter. Didn't mean he wouldn't speak to them at all, but... Not very often. So this is obviously speaking of something different than what we might think just by reading it. In other words, there will be false Christs and false prophets with holograms or manifestations or however it comes to be. that will say Christ is here or Christ is there and his kingdom is here to be set up and we're part of it. And our New World Order is God's New World Order. Because there will be a false prophet, along with the beast, two individuals, two witnesses of Satan's world. A beast, economic and military, and a false prophet, the religious side of it. God will have two witnesses that he is God. The world will have two witnesses that whoever shows up in their hologram or whatever occurs... They will say, that is Christ. And it will be false. Satan will have to witness that his kingdom is the kingdom of God. And it will come in all great lying signs and wonders so that even the very elect would be deceived, if possible. Now, verse 29 is important immediately after the tribulation of those days. So, the tribulation occurs. 1260 days later, the two witnesses have been killed, laid in the streets for three and a half days, and the first resurrection will occur. That is clear. But then... After that great tribulation, such trouble as has never been or ever was, comes another year, the day of the Lord. Immediately after the tribulation shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, And all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, it tells us in the book of Revelation, I won't go there for sake of time today, that he will come on a horse with his vesture dipped in blood, and the saints will be coming down with him. They rise to meet him in the air on the 1261st day, the end of the tribulation. There they are married, pictured by the Day of Atonement, on the sea of glass before the throne of the Father. And they have the Day of the Lord, a day as is a year, in which the seven last plagues are poured out to have their honeymoon, to be assigned their jobs, and then come back with Christ in His glory to rule the earth. He'll send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they'll gather together as elect from the four winds from the end of heaven to the other. Uh, that's at the end of the tribulation, just as this, this uh, that time of darkness, the day of the Lord, begins to occur. So he says, learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know summer is near. We know every year the trees start to blossom. So likewise you, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Which things? Famine, pestilence, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, the world headed for destruction and world war and a new world order and the coming of Satan's kingdom. When you see all these things shaping up, know it is at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now obviously he was not speaking of the generation of the disciples he was talking to. He's talking about the end of the age and what will be the signs before he returns. So this generation in this context means the one that is there when these events begin to take place. He said it's very near even at the door. And the generation that then exists will not die out before it happens. And then we have Haggai and Ezra and other places that indicate that there will be old people who were called into the church who will still be alive to see the work of the two witnesses in the end time church. And that generation that is able to make that comparison will not die out before these things happen. And most of the people who had adult minds when the church was at its greatest spiritual strength are very old now, gray or bald, and stooped and wrinkled. I just went to a website, they're having a reunion of all the students in Pasadena who went there from 1947 to 77, and uh, they want me to go. And I saw pictures of some of those people that I went to school with 50 years ago. And they're just a bunch of old people. They look awful. I mean, you see the then and now picture? and You sure? They don't look like they looked back then. I say they. (laughs) They would say the same of me. It's an old generation. And that was back in 62 when I first went. And that is about the time before, maybe 10 years before that and a few years after, the church had its greatest spiritual strength in terms of healing and various things. And a lot of those men who were my teachers at that time, nearly all of them are dead now. And the few that are still alive got one foot on a banana peel they're about gone so this thing is getting very very close it's at the door and this generation will not die out until it happens I think I'll stop there it's about the time that I like to wind it up there's a lot more to say but uh, we'll save that for another time